This evening's Bible reading is so John chapter 6, beginning at verse 41. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about Jesus, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. This is God's word. My name's Phil, I'm Associate Minister here. I'm going to pray, and then we'll get into the second half of John 6. Father God, as we look at deep teaching, we need two things from you tonight. We uh, need you to help us to understand, to concentrate when it's hot. We also need you to uh, help us to overcome the pride of our own hearts. We pray that we would not so much be interested in whether this is difficult teaching, but whether it is true. 
And we pray that you would give us courage to follow truth wherever it leads. Amen. Now, two of the most uh, important opinion formers, really, in the last 50 years in this country would be Jermaine Greer and Peter Tatchell. Jermaine Greer for feminism, Peter Tatchell for minority sexual rights is probably the easiest sort of summary of, of what he's done, but there have been other things too. And for, for the best part of you know, 40 years, I, I guess, uh, they have been, in one sense, the moral center. On issues of feminism, you get Jermaine Greer. And if she says you're all right, then, okay, you're, you're doing well in women's rights. Um, when it comes to LGBT issues, then Peter Tatchell, he was the go-to guy. They were the people who'd appear on Question Time, and when they made a comment, you know how it is on Question Time, there are some people, they could say, duck, duck, quack, goose, and people went, oh, yeah, because they, they are just, you know, these are the people. And the, the, culture, the culture centers around people like that. Until recently, in the last couple of years, both of them, both Jermaine Greer and Peter Tatchell have been no-platformed. And the reason is very simple. Now we say their views are offensive. Morality has shifted and suddenly these people who were right at the heart of two of the most prominent moral revolutions in the last hundred years in this country find themselves offensive, no-platformed. No one will listen to them anymore. Opinion formers, moral conscience is one moment, and the next, no one will listen to them. Now, Christianity has been the opinion-forming moral center of this country for hundreds and hundreds of years. These days, the truth is, it's basically marginalized and ignored. But where Christianity is addressed, it is seen as offensive now. Christianity is no-platformed for its exclusivity the teaching on sex and relationships, the doctrine of hell. These things are just offensive to our culture. And so what was once seen as the moral center of culture is now, ooh, 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 no one's going to come and hang around with you if you're proposing those views. The end of the, the passage that we just had read to us, the Jesus movement dies. The great movement that spread like wildfire through northern Israel, Galilee, in around AD 30. Thousands of people coming to follow uh, this man, Jesus. It just fizzles out until just a tiny remnant are left from the vast multitude. Verse 66, from this time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Why? Because his teaching became offensive. They grumble about his teaching in the first verse we had read, verse 41. He's just fed the 5,000. He's now teaching them the next day. But they don't like what he has to say. They take offense, verse 52. They began to argue sharply. How can he give us his flesh to eat? They complain, verse 60. This is a hard teaching. Who on earth can accept it? And finally in verse 66, many of them turn their backs on him. Now, three things make this extraordinary when you think about it. Firstly, this isn't just the crowd. This isn't just the fickle crowd who come and see and then go, these are described, verse 66, as disciples. People who said, right, I'm in for it, Jesus. I want to follow you. They're not interested observers. These are committed followers, and yet they say, right, that's enough. Uh, Secondly, Jesus has just fed them miraculously. They have just seen a full-on divine miracle. 
They've still got the taste of it in their mouths, and yet, nah. Not if he says stuff like that. And thirdly, back in last, uh, last week's passage, in verse 15, just over the page, do you see that after he fed the 5,000, Jesus, knowing they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew. In other words, the day before, they wanted to make him king. Why does that matter? There already was a king appointed by the Romans, a guy called Herod. And the Romans weren't renowned in the ancient world for the kind of tolerant, easygoing attitude they had. If you said, we don't like your king, we'd like to appoint one ourselves, it tended to end in crucifixion. That's what happened if you rebelled against Rome. So the day before, they're saying, we are willing to die for this man Jesus. We want him to be king, and we know what that means. The Romans kill us for it, they kill us, but we want this man, Jesus, to be our king. And today, they walk away. What on earth could be so offensive that Jesus teaches that disciples who he's fed miraculously and who are willing to risk their lives just turn around and walk away in their thousands, literally their thousands, until only a few more than the 12 are left? We'll see in a moment. Uh, But before we get there, it is worth just thinking about ourselves. Is your attitude to Jesus as you come here and sit down tonight contingent on how much you agree with what he says? I I enjoyed this slide I saw this week on the wonderful internet. (laughs) I'll gladly believe in God if you just show me evidence his opinions are identical to mine, says pretty much everybody in our culture today. That's how we decide whether God is real or not, if amazingly he's just like me. But actually, that's not just a, a problem outside the church. It's also inside. This is, this is us that are being spoken about. Too often, you and I, we come here and we come to the Bible and we are only too willing to reject the teaching of Jesus if it offends us or if we disagree with it, if it doesn't match my idea of right and wrong or if it cuts against the way I feel or stops me doing stuff I really want to do, then that's just offensive. And so we walk away. And tonight we're going to be challenged by the Holy Spirit. What will we do when his words offend us? Now there is just far too much here for one evening. And you'll be relieved to hear we're not going to try and do it all. We're really actually going to look at just one verse. Verse 54. Uh, Verse 54. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. There's just a huge amount in this passage. And rather than keep us here for an hour and a half. uh, Or speak four times faster than usual. We're just going to focus on that. Uh, there's lots actually that offends them if you read it through. His, Jesus' claim to divine origin offends them, verses 41 to 54. But the central thing that offends them is this claim that whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, which is the claim that it is only through the death of Jesus Christ that you can be forgiven and have eternal life. That's the claim that offends people. And I hope, though, that as we look at it, we'll see that although it is offensive to us as well as to the original audience, it has the advantage of being true. And if you put your trust in this Jesus, if you eat him, you will live. Uh, Just two points there. Firstly, only Jesus' death can give you life. 
verses 41 to 59. The focus of, uh, of this first section, 41 to 59, is on how we get eternal life. Let's just um, come in at verse 47. Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Now it turns out that the key of this, uh, of living, of having eternal life, is, as he says there, that we have this bread which is his flesh, verse 51, or as 54 puts it, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up. Now, what on earth does that mean? To eat his flesh. My brother was uh, in the army and uh, he told me that when they arrived at Sandhurst, the the first few days basically comprised of three things. There was no sleeping, there wasn't much eating. It was basically running around with heavy loads, marching around on the drill square and being insulted in creative ways by the sergeant major, which was the main thing that seemed to happen. Just shouting at you. Uh, to provoke a response. And there was a, there was a guy from, uh, as we would call it, the colonies in his, uh, in his platoon. And the sergeant major decided it was his turn and just unloaded on this guy to see if he could get a rise out of him. And, uh, and at one particular point, he said there was this memorable moment when everybody just lost it, uh, which sergeants don't enjoy. But the sergeant said to him, what gives you the right to be in Her Majesty's army? What possible link have you got to my wonderful country? And he said, it's in my blood. What do you mean by that? Well, literally. My great-grandfather ate the British High Commissioner. (laughs) Just everybody lost it. (laughs) Jesus is not talking about cannibalism here, okay? It's just, that's not what's going on. It is not at all about cannibalism. People have misunderstood Christianity right from the early days. You can read, I had to study Latin in school, lucky me. And Pliny, the the Roman governor in Bithynia, he writes in letters about those despicable Christians who are into incest and cannibalism. Because you love your brothers and sisters and you eat the, the, the flesh of Christ. It's always been misunderstood that way, but that was never what it was about. It was always just a picture, a metaphor. Jesus spoke in pictures to help us understand. And what I want to do is uh, to dig into these two particular key words, flesh and eat, to help us see what's going on in this metaphor. What is he trying to tell us? And what we'll see is he's telling us about what it means to trust in his death for our life. His death for our life. His punishment for our forgiveness. That's what he's telling us about. So firstly, flesh. Now it's paired here with drinking blood. Verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Now the pairing with, uh, with blood is really key and it helps us to understand what's going on if we know our Bibles. Because throughout the Bible, blood doesn't just mean if you, if you sort of prick your hand and there's a drop of blood. Blood is, is almost always just a byword for death, especially violent death, sacrificial death. So blood is a way of saying life that's being taken. Uh, So back in Genesis 9, you see as God makes his covenant with Noah after the flood, he says, for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from every human being. I will demand an accounting for life. Whoever sheds human blood, 
by humans shall their blood be shed. Do you see? I'll demand an accounting for those who take life. And then he explains it by saying, whoever sheds human blood. And throughout the Bible, blood is, is, is just another way of saying life violently taken. Blood is life violently taken. And so the, in the sacrificial system, the, the blood was sprinkled as a way of saying, this is the life, the death of the animal. The blood wasn't just a part of it. It represents the life of the animal. Now, do you recall the, the very first thing that John tells us a human being says about Jesus in his gospel? John the Baptist sees Jesus approach as he's baptizing people in, in the Jordan River, and he says, look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. People must have been thinking, you want to study harder in biology, mate. That's not a lamb. It's a human being. Are you blind? It doesn't look anything like a lamb. But John's point was that Jesus was the fulfillment of something very significant. Since human beings rejected God in the Garden of Eden, God's judgment was to cut us off from the tree of life. And since then, every human being has died, physically dying as a symbol of our spiritual death that we're cut off from God. Every human lives under the shadow of death. But God provided the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, all that blood and gore of the animals being killed. They're killed and their blood is usually richly sprinkled. Symbolically, the animal dies in the place of the person. And we saw last week, the first half of John 6 shows that Jesus is kind of like Moses, but a whole lot better. He brings about a true and better exodus. He, uh, he protects and provides for us and saves us from death. And we saw last week um, that in the first exodus, the people were saved because God instructed every family to kill a lamb and splatter its blood over the door of the house. And when the angel of death came from God to bring justice, judgment, death on Egypt, he passed over the Israelite houses because the lamb had died in the place of the people. And that lamb and every other sacrifice after it was a bloody reminder that God would provide a sacrifice so that we wouldn't die for our sins. All of them pointed to the great ultimate reality that there wouldn't be an animal that God sent, but God himself would take flesh so that he could die for you and for me. So we would have eternal life. And so when we read here, Jesus says... Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. He is linking eternal life to his sacrificial death on the cross. He's saying that what, when he dies on the cross, it will bring us life. Just as we saw in all those signs and symbols and weird rituals in the Old Testament, all of it was there to teach us that the death of Jesus would bring us life. His flesh and blood means his sacrificial death on the cross. But that's only half of it. Eat. We learn about flesh, but we're told we need to eat his death. What does it mean to eat his death? Well, the parallel comes in verse 47. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. And then he goes on to say, I am the bread of life and you must eat my flesh. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. 47, the one who believes has eternal life. 51, Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh. 
Do you see? Believing in Jesus is the equivalent to eating his flesh. The two are the same thing. Eating is just a way of expressing, uh, another way of saying, put your trust in Jesus, believe in him. Well, why not just say believe then? Why confuse us with the eating stuff, Jesus? Well, it tells us something that just saying believe wouldn't tell us. Eating is about, it's, it's about nourishment. When you eat, it nourishes you. It keeps you alive. Eating expresses dependence. And eating also is internalizing, wholly taking something in. Eating also hints at what it costs for Jesus. He doesn't just contribute to our salvation. Our eternal life, your eternal life, costs Jesus everything. He is consumed. Our life was his death. Our forgiveness was his condemnation. Our wholeness was his disintegration. Our welcome was his banishment. Your eternal feeding meant his earthly death. That's why eat is so important. Now at this point, we just need to deal with a bit of confusion because you'll, you'll have seen the table down at the front. We're going to have the Lord's Supper later. Uh, so is that what Jesus is talking about? Is he saying the Lord's Supper is what we need to do? They're related, but it's not really what he's talking about. They're both signs. One is verbal, one is physical. So I could say, uh, go to the bookstall after the service and you'll see there's just around the other side of the organ, there's a sign saying bookstall. Now, I'm not pointing you to that sign. I'm pointing you to the bookstall. That sign also points you to the bookstall. When I say go to the bookstall, I don't mean go to that sign. I mean go to the actual bookstall underneath it. When Jesus says, eat my flesh, he doesn't mean uh, have the Lord's Supper. He means trust in him, believe in his death. And the Lord's Supper is another way of, another sign of our trust in his death. Both signs point to the same reality, Jesus' death on the cross. Or if you like, uh, this passage, these words, call us verbally, trust in Jesus for your life. The ritual of the Lord's Supper that we'll do later expresses physically, I trust in the Lord Jesus. Both point to the same reality, but this does nothing on its own. It's the reality of trust in Jesus that matters. Eat Jesus' flesh, and you'll live. Wholly rely on his death for your forgiveness and life, and you will have forgiveness and life. Okay, that's what it means. Why is it so offensive? Why is it that all the disciples disappear? Why is it that thousands turn their backs on Jesus? Because he says this. Well, to Jesus' original Galilean audience, I think it's offensive because it says to them, You are not enjoying God's life and forgiveness right now. And central to their identity as the Jewish people was that we are the chosen people of God. So to say you need to feed on the the death of Jesus is to say you're not on the inside at the moment. You're not in a right standing with God as it stands. Hang on, how dare you? We're the descendants of Abraham. Don't tell us we need somebody to die for us. Don't tell us we've got to go through some ritual to be on the inside of God's people. That's ridiculous. It's hugely offensive to them. Now, I don't think that's an issue so much in our culture, partly because we're a multi-culture. But Jesus' teaching here is offensive to us as well. It's not offensive to us because we think we're the chosen people. It's offensive to us because we know 
we're good people. We don't know about you, I'm a good person, aren't you? Nobody really thinks they're not a good person. Certainly not, I'm certainly good enough not to deserve hell. I mean, that's, no. <laughs> no, no, no you know, there's lots of worse people than me out there. That's how we think in our culture. That's why we advise people, follow your heart and be true to yourself because we are convinced that what lies inside me is noble and true and pure. And so if I follow my heart, I'll head in a good direction. And Jesus says, no, no, no. You and I are so deeply wicked and lost that the only way that we can share in God's eternal life is for Jesus to die in bloody agony on the cross and take the punishment for our sins. And that is offensive. I realized quite how offensive it was a few years back talking to a local Anglican clergyman who described himself as a true theological liberal. He says, I simply don't believe in censorship. I remember him telling me. Until one day, uh, someone was asked to preach on the cross from 1 Corinthians 1.18 in his church. And he locked the vestry door and said, this will not be spoken about in my church. He said, I will not have it said that I or anybody else deserves hell and the only way to be saved is the death of Jesus. I will not have it said. And I'll never forget, he then said, I would rather go to hell than believe in a God who has to punish sin for my forgiveness. Extraordinary thing to say. The gospel is offensive. It says, you can only have eternal life with God if you let go of the notion that you're a good person. But we all think we're good. I often find myself talking to people when they find out what I do. You get into sort of conversations and people talk a bit about them themselves and their, and their deepest sort of ideas because I'm a clergyman. And I often ask people, would you say you're a good person? And the response is almost always the same. I'm not perfect, but I'm basically a good person. I try to do what's right. As I've said before, think about that. That means that you and I, and I haven't met anybody who says anything really different. And my experience is most people say the same sort of thing. I'm basically a good person. I'm not perfect, but I try to do the right thing. Is that your experience of most people? Which means we live in a planet populated by 7 billion people who are a force for good who try to do the right thing. What a wonderful world this is. And on this planet where seven billion people are walking around day by day trying to do what's right, 385,000 people were murdered last year. On this planet where seven billion people are forces for good and are basically decent people, a three-year-old child was specifically targeted and had acid thrown over his face yesterday in Worcester just up the road from here. We are deeply, deeply deluded. And if everybody else out there is deluded about how good they are, isn't it possible that you and I might be a little bit deluded too? Isn't it possible that it's not just them who don't realize how bad they are, it might also be me? We are not fundamentally good. And we realize this when we think about our attitude to God. Most humanity rejects God and God is the ultimate source and the only source of truth, of goodness, of justice, of moral beauty in the whole universe. And we reject him and we think we know better. 
and we are proud and self-obsessed and angry and lustful and petty and foolish. We find God's offer of eternal life offensive because we think we deserve it and because we don't want to give up our deluded notions of our own moral worth. And Jesus says, I offer you eternal life, but the only way to have it is through my death. It's a brutal point he makes. Only his death can give us life. And verse 60, the response on hearing it, many disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Verse 66, from that time, many of them turned back and no longer followed him. But that's not the only thing we read in this passage. Just wonder before we get on to the second point, whether it's worth just checking that the street doors are open. Otherwise, it'll get a little bit, uh, it's getting quite close in here. Let's make sure there's some, uh, a throughput of air, perhaps, from the back. And so the exciting crowd dwindles to just a few disciples. And Jesus turns to the 12. And look what he asks them, verse 67. You do not want to leave two, do you? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now, I don't know what tone of voice Peter used at this point. He could have exclaimed with a beaming smile, Ah, don't be ridiculous. You have the words of eternal life. Why would I want to leave you? Or he might have said with a sad face and heavy resignation, Ah, I don't know what to make of it. This is so, so hard. I, I find this really difficult, but where else can I turn? Who else is going to die for me? Who else? And in one sense, it really doesn't matter what their attitude is. The point is the same either way, which is there is no plan B. There just isn't. There's no other way to be forgiven. There's no other way to eternal life. To whom should we go? And Jesus, he's the only one who's died for our sins. He's the only one who has the words of eternal life for you and for me. There is no plan B. Now, I guess some of us here will be really joyful about following Jesus. We found a sense of purpose and fulfillment, a freedom from guilt and shame, and a joyful community that means we are just delighted. We, we have, we've experienced, we've tasted and seen that God is good, and, for, and our experience is the Christian life is the fullest, richest life there is. And we love to say to Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. For others, I guess, for whatever reason, the cost is immense right now. And it's a painful struggle to follow Jesus. But where else will you turn? Who else has died for you? Where else will you find eternal life? Now I guess for some of us it won't actually be the cost of recognizing I'm a sinner that's the greatest cost. So much as the sacrifices I have to make to obey Jesus in personal life. Sacrifices in how I behave with uh, my relationships, what I do sexually. Sacrifices in my standard of living compared with my peers because I, I want to give to the gospel and to, to help the poor. Sacrifices in my popularity. Sacrifices because I have to stand up for the truth now and I have to stand up for those who are oppressed. Sacrifices because I'm willing to be known as a Christian. It may be very, very costly, but to whom else shall I go? He has the words of eternal life. 
Trusting, eating, Jesus is the only way to have eternal life. That's the offense of the message. But note, just as we, uh, as we come to close, that Jesus doesn't describe himself here as the vaccination of life, but the bread of life. It's not because they didn't have vaccinations back then. It's because of a, a very important difference. A vaccination is a one-off shot, basically. The doctor, oh, yeah, okay, basically, broadly. It's a one-off shot, and then you're okay. I remember we had a missionary come and stay with us when I was a six-year-old, uh, and then it turned out they had tuberculosis, which isn't ideal. So we had to get straight off to the um, hospital the next day, and we had a quick, and as I remember, extraordinarily painful jab. I may just have been a worse... Um, I still remember how painful it was. Anyway... Fine, no need for anything else. I'm safe from tuberculosis for life. Huzzah. It's not like that with Jesus. His death is our daily bread. You don't put your trust in Jesus' death and that's job done. Ignore it. And for a Christian, maturity doesn't mean that I no longer have to depend on Jesus' death as much as I used to. Actually, maturity as a Christian is an increasing awareness of my need for Jesus and his death and increasing thankfulness for his sacrifice. His death is our daily bread. It's great to see uh, Alan Beth's uh, son Theo here for the first time tonight. Am I allowed to call him Theo, or are we not yet allowed? Yeah, there we go. Al says it's okay, and Beth's upstairs, so we're all right. Theo, Theo it is. Now, as Theo grows up, he will change, and you will change him many times, I hope. uh, And he will get bigger or should I say even bigger. Uh, and right now, right now, Theo has to be carried everywhere by Beth. That will change. It would be a bit odd if when he's 18, Beth is still, be pretty impressive as well if he ends up the size of Al. Uh, Beth will not still be carrying him around. He will grow. He will become independent. Right now, he goes to his parents for everything. But as he grows up, he'll become an independent man, we pray. He will grow out of the need for them to look after his every need. But he won't grow out of his need to eat. He won't grow out of his delight in eating either of his owl's son. But he will always, always need to eat. Growing up as a Christian, you change lots from the first day when you become a Christian to to a mature Christian. You move from being a baby to an adult, but you never stop needing to eat. You never stop needing the bread of life. You never stop needing the death of Jesus. Now, it's not the case that every day you wake up and I'm not forgiven and then I have to feed on Jesus and I'm forgiven. No, when you put your trust in Jesus, you are forgiven for your sins, past, present, and future. But the point is that every day you continue to rely on that death in your place. You never get beyond the need to trust in Jesus. I don't care how long you live as a Christian on earth, you will never live a day so good that you can at the end of it say, well, I don't need to be forgiven for anything today. No need for the death of Jesus today. But wonderfully, you'll never live a day so wicked that the death of Jesus cannot sustain you to eternal life. So feed each day on the living bread Enjoy the privilege every day that you can bring your guilt and your shame and your failure to him and instead feed on his life. I had a coffee with my sister last week, which was nice. Hadn't seen her for a while. And she'd just been to hear a guest speaker at her church who'd come over from India. And she said it was really, really striking. He'd grown up in rural India and in a strict Hindu village. And they were ruled by, there are lots of different gods um, over there, 
as you may know from Hinduism. And this particular village was ruled by the, the tree gods. And they had to sacrifice blood to the tree gods for everything. If the monsoon rains were late, they had to sacrifice blood to the tree gods. If the crops were going to grow, they had to sacrifice blood to the tree gods. If you wanted a family, you sacrificed blood to the tree gods. If you wanted protection from the evil spirits, you sacrificed blood to the tree gods. But he said one day a man came to their village with a book. And he opened the book and told them about a guy called Jesus in the book. About the God who came down to offer himself to us. Wonderfully, the man said, I turned from being a tree worshipper to a true worshipper, which is rather lovely. But what was even more lovely is, he said, the thing that struck him, that changed his heart, that meant he would follow Jesus, whatever Jesus taught, was he said, the tree gods were always demanding blood from us, but here was a God who poured out his blood for me. In a moment, we'll read those famous words of Jesus as we share the Lord's Supper. Take... Eat, this is my body, broken for you. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you that the Lord Jesus is indeed our living bread. Thank you that his death is our life. Help us, we pray, to trust in him, to feed on him. And to know that his death is everything we'll need if we are to live forever. Amen.